Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Greg Gunthorpe. Greg is a fourth-generation farmer who's clearly a critical thinker. Greg has reimagined what livestock production and meat marketing looks like on their farm. His understanding of the history of ag production and his ability to glean knowledge from that history has given him discernment and a great perspective on how to manage and lead their operation. Greg says he likes to act locally and think globally. And that really defines the way Greg sees things. He has both that 30,000 foot big picture view clear down to the minute details. This is an exciting listen. So let's jump right in. Well, welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I, I know a lot of people are oftentimes upset with kind of what the status quo is. And they just, they complain about what it is and wish it would change. And today's guest is not satisfied with that, I would say. He knows what the status quo is, and he has done some very pioneering efforts. You're going to enjoy learning uh, all the things that he's done to try to change that status quo. So a fellow farmer and a fellow pasture-raised protein farmer, too, uh, from Indiana, I'd like to welcome Greg Gunthorpe. Good afternoon. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Don't you think that's fair, Greg? Uh, You're not very satisfied with the status quo, and you definitely do something about it. Oh, for sure. Not satisfied with the status quo. You know, my my opinion is that um, I like to um, uh, act locally and uh, think globally. Um, you know, so uh, we've made a lot of changes here at the farm. Uh, and then, you know, I also do a fair amount of advocacy work at the um, state, national and international level. But, you know, here at the farm, uh, my family uh, been pasture pig producers for at least four generations. Wow. And uh my dad in 94 said that the hog market for the independent uh, family hog farmer was over. And, you know, I spent some time at the land grant university and come back and my goal was I wanted to raise pigs for my life. And I said, I'm not done raising pigs. So my wife and I went off on our own in 1994 and four years later, I found out that my dad was right. The mm-hmm. hog market for the independent hog farmer was finished. And once again, I said, I'm not done raising pigs. And, uh, you know, that same year, we were fortunate enough to connect with a um, restaurant in Chicago, um, Charlie Trotter, uh, Wine Spectator Magazine, rated him that same month that we sold him our first pig, rated him number one in the world for food and wine. So it's a little bit of luck and uh, I think a lot of fate. Um, You know, we made the connection and uh, went from uh, being just a live pig uh, farmer uh, to selling pork and we became part owners of a processing plant up in Michigan uh, failed miserably on that we were part owners for about three years and I said you know if we put a processing plant on the farm I could manage the processing plant manage the farm and still be able to um, go off and do sales and delivery rather than it being in three locations and so we built a processing plant on the farm and we've been direct marketing since 1998. And it's not always went um, smooth, but um, 
it's been an amazing journey. Uh, we have product in uh, Disney. We have product at O'Hare Airport. Uh, we have product served to the um, Chicago Cubs at the clubhouse. So, and it's, it's been some, we have some exciting and uh, cool things that we do. And, uh, you know, it's uh, for sure uh, not a fan of the status quo, I guess. And uh, we did something about it. Well, I love that because uh, your dad, uh, he definitely is a um, a genie. That's for sure. He knew exactly what was coming because in 1998, uh, I was part of a Case IH dealership here in Henry County, Illinois, and we're the self-proclaimed hog capital of the world. So up until about 1998, there was still hogs out on, on the fields. Not many compared to what it was 20 years before that, but there was still a fair amount. And our local price got down to eight cents. And yep. it, it just, it just gutted the industry. I mean, if, if you weren't in a barn or if you didn't have a modern uh, barn, you, you were done. And uh, it, it really hurt our business because a lot of farmers were, you know, they're real crop farmers getting equipment, but they also had the hogs too. So they weren't, you know, mega farms at that time. They were, they were relying on balanced income and it just, it just really shut them down from what they could do. So it affected our business and, and, and those kind of things. So it's interesting to see that, uh, yeah, you started out and in 1998, direct marketing, uh, had Al Gore invented the internet yet? I mean, it, <laughs> I no. mean, that, that, and, uh, you know, the Zuckerberg hadn't created, uh, social media. Um, so what, uh, that had been a little tough. How did you go about doing that and have the wild idea that, Hey, I think I'm going to sell what I make. Well, you know, the, um, short version of how I got there is that, um, you know, growing up on a diversified family farm, uh, you know, we were involved in 4-H and FFA when I was young, and I was actually quite involved in FFA and Future Farmers of America. And I got the opportunity to be an exchange student uh, after I graduated from high school. I spent the summer in England and Scotland in mm -hmm. 1988 uh, and stayed on uh, 11 different uh, family farms, uh, started in southern Scotland, ended up in southern England. And two of those farms that I'd spent a week on each one of them, uh, two of those farms were making their living uh, direct marketing, selling at farmer's markets, selling to little um, meat shops, selling to restaurants. And at the time, uh, and I wish mom would have saved the letter because I wrote home, I thought it was the craziest thing in the world. Um, and, you know, uh, lo and behold. Uh, now you're doing the craziest yeah, thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> ten, ten years later, the... Um, uh, market crashes. And, you know, I tell my wife, I'm like, you know, um, if you pick up the magazines, you can just start to see that this um, is starting to get trendy, or it's gonna looks like it's going to get trendy, you know, trends back then before the internet and that, uh, you, you know, used to take uh, 10 years to go from the big cities in Europe out to the countryside, and 10 years from there to come to our coast and 10 years from the coast to get to the big cities and 10 years to get out to rural America. You know, that's sped up a lot now with the internet and people seeing what's going on. But I said, you know, I think this thing might actually happen here. And uh, you could just start to see guys like uh, Bill Nyman were already selling to Alice Waters at Shape and Eans. You'd, you'd see that in the, newspaper or magazine every once in a while guys like john jameson out on the other coast was selling to like the watergate and into a few places in new york and i said you know i think we can eke out a living selling to some 
big name chefs in the big city. And I'm, uh, I almost swore there. I don't probably shouldn't do that. Um, I, I think there, there's two people on the planet at the time that didn't think I was the craziest person ever. Um, and that was my wife and my sister, everyone else, whole rest of my family, everyone I mentioned it to when I said, uh, we're going to make a living getting our pigs processed and we're going to sell them to restaurants in Chicago. Thought I was absolutely bonkers. Um, you know, it, it gained traction uh, for a while. Got uh, We were doubling every year there. We were always selling about three pigs a week um, uh, when we first started. You know, and as a commodity producer, we were doing 1,500, 2,000 a year. It took quite a while till we got back to the levels that we were doing as a commodity producer. And it didn't take me very long to realize that the biggest bottleneck in the system and the biggest uh, impediment was going to be the um, processing our ability to actually get the number of animals that we wanted processed and then get them uh, cut and packaged for, you know, three, four, five-star um, chefs. So we become involved in a processing plant really quick. And that I was a deer in the headlights the first six months. That was like, whoa, you know, I mean, I, we fully understand processing now and the, um, what's all involved in that. It's a highly capital uh, management labor intensive business, but you know we went into it uh, not knowing any of that. But uh, you know it it's worked. It, it grew really really fast. It doesn't grow as it's not growing as fast now. But uh, you know it got crazy. Had we filled out the paperwork um, in 2011, we would have been on the Inc's 5,000 list. We would have been somewhere in between 16 to 1,700 fastest growing independent businesses in the United States, and it got little crazy for a while uh, and running a business that was expanding that fast was really really fun yeah right R running the processing and the production and still doing the deliveries like you said so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, i'm glad you had time to sit down with us here today um uh, i'm surprised we didn't get you while you're in the truck you know oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, you know, fr friday mornings on the um, farm is a pig slaughter day so um, you know, I could have put a hands-free on and a video in the corner. We could have uh, harvested some pigs while we were on the podcast. There you go. It could have been uh, multi-purpose. So yep. talk about, you know, processing. Uh, a lot of people become aware of that since COVID uh, in, in the general population and other farmers who are trying to get, you know, some beef done for their family or friends. Uh, uh, those kind of situations have, have noticed a problem with, with processing and it being full and those kind of things. And like you said, you were partners with one and you brought it back to the farm. And there's, there's lots of roads we can go down here and uh, take the next two hours to talk about, <laughs> but, um, you know, and how you can do on-farm processing and all the regulations involved with it, but how you saw that was important to happen. And, you know, a lot of people, again, just complain about not having processing, but, but you did it. So walk us through that process of what that's been like for you to do on-farm processing and, and why that's so critical to your brand and your farm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, um, let me uh, make one comment and go back just a little bit uh, further back behind that, uh, just to explain this whole thing, because, uh, you know, those of us uh, from rural America, um, if we stop and think about this, uh, you know, our community had, um, uh, one that was an example, the um, plant that we became part owners of was an example. Lots of communities had those um, uh, little um, locker plants. And, you know, there was two, well, there's actually three kinds. Um, uh, you know, there, there, ones, there were ones that had a little truck 
and actually had a small wholesale route. And in lots of communities, there was one of those that hung on well into the 80s, some of them into the 90s. Uh, there were uh, a few little ones uh, that mostly just did um, for not for sale processing. Some of them did it under inspection, but it almost all went back to the farmers for their own freezer, for their own personal consumption. Um, and then the remainder of the little plants were the ones that did the animals that the big guys didn't want to touch. You know, the off-weight pigs, the um, uh, cull dairy cows that wouldn't make the trip to a long processing plant. And, you know, I, I think when people stop and think about this whole processing, uh, they don't give any thought to why it is so complicated um, that there are not processors for you know, farmer market uh, farmers, direct marketing farmers, uh, ones that want to sell to upscale restaurants. Um, there was a few USDA plants around, and there still are. There were none left that had wholesale routes um, that were cutting for restaurants, that were doing upscale. Uh, th those were literally all gone. We've had to completely rebuild the processing infrastructure in the United States. Um, there were not processors um, in the 90s. There wasn't even into the early 2000s that processed for farmers that were that wanted to do farmers markets. There just absolutely weren't. Those processors put a stuff in a box for a person to take back home to their freezer. So, you know, I, I very quickly realized um, if we're going to sell to restaurants, and they all want their stuff cut slightly different. They all want it packaged slightly different. They all um, have a huge expectation that quality is impeccable. They have a huge expectation that shelf life is phenomenal. Um, I realized really, really quick that we were not going to be able to find a processor that could do that. Um, probably would have been a little bit easier to find a processor that would have done uh, just for farmers markets or just for stores that would have been frozen vacuum packed product, but absolutely would have been impossible to find a processor that would let us vary the number of pigs that we brought in, want them cut completely different each week and want them back out the door quick enough so that they could be delivered fresh to restaurants so that they could still get a week's shelf life out of them. So we didn't have to go to Chicago five days of the week. And so we, um, bought into a processing plant. And like I said, I, we were a deer in the headlights. Um, you know, uh, USDA regulations aren't really that bad now once I know it, but you know, it's, um, you take the regulations, the directives, the notices and you stack them up, they're, they're about waist high. Um, but most of them make sense. And you know, most of the inspectors haven't read them uh, just like most of the people in the industry haven't read them. Uh, you know, I actually have, uh, I've got a pretty good memory, so I can tell you what most of them are, but we're definitely not going down that rabbit hole. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, the process basically is that you fill out a grant of inspection with your uh, district office. Uh, you wait for your um, circuit supervisor to come out. He has a little checklist. Uh, I share the checklist with people. USDA doesn't share the checklist, but I share the checklist with people so they can see what they're actually looking for. And when USDA finally checks off all the boxes and it's mostly paperwork so that they know you have a program in place for it, 
once they finally check off those boxes, they send you out a USDA inspector. And, you know, the um, half of the battles, uh, getting them to check all the boxes, the lifetime battle is the um, second uh, checklist, which is all of your regulatory compliance that they're ensuring that you meet every day. And, you know, just like everything else in farming, uh, there's a certain scale that's required um, to be able to justify processing plants. And I'd actually say that our farm is probably too small um, to justify that, especially too small to justify that without me and the family having to wear too many hats. And at the end of the day, I think that's the one of the biggest hurdles. You know, it's, it's not building the processing plant. It's building the processing plant and the people that own it um, still having any kind of uh, quality of life. Because when you deal with live animals and perishable product, there's something that needs to be done 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if your business is not big enough that you justify somebody that's responsible for some of those other things, um, you know, and you run a two shift processing plant so that you can get stuff out the door and get it delivered to restaurants in Chicago, Indianapolis, Ann Arbor, uh, you can have an awful lot of days of the week and an awful lot of the hours of the week um, committed big time. So, Yeah, absolutely. It's uh... <clears throat> it's a lot of coordination to make that all happen because uh, um, restaurants aren't too interested in frozen product, are they? No, you know, we, we've actually um, developed a clientele uh, that are, um, will accept some thought out product at certain times of the year. And we have a few customers that will take some frozen product, but by and large, yeah, restaurants want uh, fresh product. You know, they've been burnt too many times. Uh, you know, they always tell people stuff doesn't come out of the freezer any better than it went in the freezer. And the meat and poultry industry has a horrible, horrible uh, history of trying to sell something till its end of its expiration date is fresh, throwing it in the freezer. And then when that stuff comes out, it was at its end of its expiration date when it went in the freezer. It's beyond its expiration date by the time it thaws, you know, so people have a um, justification between that. And, you know, if you're running a um, fan, uh, busy restaurant in the big city, um, you tend to not have enough uh, um, workspace, let alone refrigeration space uh, to thaw things properly. And we all know that if you cook things from a partially frozen state, they don't cook the same way. You know, you can't throw a chop on a grill at the center of it's frozen and get the thing to the exact desired doneness. And, you know, if you've got a nice restaurant, it has to, you have to have consistency. So, I mean, there, there's reasons that, uh, you know, but there's also um, legitimate ways to, you know, that you package things, freeze them when they're uh, processed and thaw them correctly. And, you know, you'd have a hard time telling that apart. So we have some restaurants that are acceptive of that. And then we have some that don't. And, you know, we slaughter pigs year round because of that. So, and we've worked out. We, we didn't realize it at the time before the pandemic, but we actually had a really good program. And I like to call it safety net marketing, where, you know, we have a um, area avenue that this product goes into. And then we have another uh, means that we can sell it. And we have another means that we can turn it into something. And we have a means of what we can do with it if it goes in the freezer. 
And, you know, we flipped that up on its head uh, with COVID, but uh, we're rebuilding that. So it's, so it's you, always you, something. You have to have plan A, B, C, D, and then COVID comes in and you got to have, uh, you know, E through. Oh, yeah. Correct. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you got to uh, kind of wad those up, throw them in the corner and start out with a new set of plans. And and now it seems like with COVID that the letters and uh, numbers of plans that you have to have uh, is a lot deeper now. Yeah, but no, I, that's good to hear because I think, you know, when you get into uh, on the grass finished products with the ruminants, I think it's best to harvest them on green grass for the nutrient density portion of it. And, uh, but a different market for direct to consumer, they can accept frozen, you know, uh, because way we're doing it, I mean, way a lot of producers do it is they cut, pack, freeze, you know, at the processor uh, by the individual cut. And then, then we do have some restaurants that will thaw and, and properly and deliver to, like you said. Uh, but that right. way, you, you know, exactly, you really know how old that is then you right. have complete control of that. Um, well, I think don't, don't you think you're um, the best customers? I mean, in our case, for sure, the best customers completely understand that, get that, and would rather an animal was uh, raised and harvested at the correct season rather than a fresh product out of season. Yes, you, yes, yes, it is. But it's there's a lot of conversation, a lot of training that needs to occur. Oh yeah, agree. For sure. Oh yeah, yeah, right. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture, along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome. We provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. So... One thing I've gotten recently, quite a few requests, and, and this just popped in my head, but I've gotten some people asking about the aging process, like how long do you age? Uh, worried about them being just hung, you know, sides hung for 18 to 21 days uh, prior to cut and pack, uh, that being a concern. Have you run into any of that lately? Um, you know, the- Here on pork, um, but I mean, on, yeah, that was a right, question in regards right, to we're, we're fortunate in regards to the, um, you know, we, we don't have to age product. And in fact, it's probably best not to the, um, you know, I think our ideal dining experience on our pork and poultry is between three and seven days. And, you know, we slaughter on Fridays and Mondays. It's delivered on Wednesday and Thursday. And most of it ends up being served on Friday and Saturday because those are the busiest days at the restaurant. So ours is actually in, intentional in that it's served on what I believe is the, you know, because if you get too close to the um, slaughter date on pork and poultry, it's actually got a little bit more bite to it. And then, you know, you obviously can get into quality issues as you go on the shelf life. I think most of the issues that farmers are facing on the, um, on the beef side tends to be that uh, these plants really weren't built for the capacities uh, that they really need to run to justify the plant and have three weeks worth of beef hanging in a cooler. You know, so uh, there, there's a huge, huge cost in cutting the capacity of that plant 33% or 66% by saying, hey, we've got one week's uh, slaughter of beef, 
uh, let's just um, leave those hang for two more weeks. And you just cut the amount of uh, rail space that they got to hang beef by a huge, huge amount. And I think that's the biggest obstacle that uh, um, beef guys face on the, and, you know, we've, we've cut a few beef, um, you know, raised just a few here and there. And personally, my, my uh, favorite is that I think there's uh, cuts off from the beef uh, that ought to be done fresh, the less than six days, less than the week, uh, especially the stuff that goes into the hamburger. And then I think the steaks um, ought to be left there to age the um, 21 days. I think another thing that um, uh, we don't stop and think about and the University of Wisconsin has done the research, um, you know, this E. coli um, in beef is such a big concern now. Um, that only happened um, after, you know, the um, industry no longer aged beef for at least six days. University of Wisconsin research shows that six days in a um, cooler, as long as you keep the relative humidity below 90 degrees, you get a really, really good reduction in E. coli. You uh, cut those things like the big guys do in two days and put them in a vacuum and uh, pack and wet age them and you get zero reduction on the E. coli. So, you know, there's quality yeah. and food safety issues there. And if anything, in the wet aging, you're creating a perfect microbial brew for them to uh, to survive. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and multiply. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. the, the industry uh, and, and that, okay, there's a great example of unintended consequences, right? So went to right. wet aging by primals so that we could reduce storage space. You can put you can put primals on on racks. Don't have to hang them on rails, and they can go a forklift and whatever fifty foot high if you want in boxes. And then the other thing is too is no shrink. That was the big sale. Right. You get one percent shrink in wet aging, where you get what three to seven on, on oh, the dry aging. But the unintended consequences, you know, the reason maybe our, we've lived as long as we did as humans is our ancestors hung them. And we're inadvertently getting rid of E. coli. I didn't even know they were doing it. So yep. <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting when you change one thing, you change a lot of things there. Um, well, I'll, I'll definitely look that up and 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 dig into that. I think that's important for people to know. Yeah, and I think the other thing. Oh no, no, go ahead. The other thing, the other thing that I think most people don't stop and think about. You know, the the loss of family farms is a topic that. Um, you know, resonates with people, but the loss of the processing plants and the loss of skilled butchers is not a topic that generally people stop and think about, but that uh, cutting them and wet aging them and putting them in boxes um, allowed the industry to destroy the unions. It allowed the industry to turn those jobs into something that a person literally comes in and does exactly the same one cut um, every single day. So it becomes a low, much lower skilled job than breaking down carcasses. And, you know, the IVPs of the world, um, you know, just decimated the um, small community packing plants that were union high paid jobs. Mm -hmm. That is true. And normally owned by, you know, a local small, small business yep. person that contributes right. back to the community. Uh, you alluded to it a little bit, uh, poultry business. Uh, you did a lot of poultry at one time. I, you're not doing poultry today, are you? Or um, we, you know, we still do a uh, much smaller scale. We still do some uh, turkeys. We'll do some ducks this year. Uh, we would do as many turkeys as we did before, but um, we uh, quit chickens and we no longer have a full-time 
chicken processing crew. Uh, 2020 was the last season for us to do chickens. Uh, we did about 120,000 um, broilers a year. So in some ways, a really big uh, operation, you know, when you consider pasture poultry. Um, I, I would guess at one point, if we weren't the largest pasture poultry operation in the country, uh, we were really close because I think we were at one point when uh, Will Harris was, um, when they were scaling down their chickens at the time, uh, Paul Grieve and Pasture Bird was scaling theirs up. But uh, in 2020, we ended up with, you know, the being mostly a restaurant supplier before, and then uh, chickens was by far the most uh, labor um, per pound and per dollar of anything that we produced on the farm. And the labor market uh, for us, and I think for lots of other people, uh, just got really, really silly after um, COVID. And then we had as much as uh, 68 pallets extra of uh, frozen chicken in cold storage um, there in that third quarter in 2020. And I, I got way too many uh, gray hairs and way too many sleepless nights and too much stress. It ended up working out completely fine. Um, in the winter, our, um, you know, our first part of the winter, January, February, uh, for restaurant sales, normally always the slowest of the year by far. And uh, it actually ended up uh, being pretty steady. And uh, we got rid of the um, chicken, but uh, we decided it was just too much risk anymore. We were putting the whole farm at risk to um, continue uh, with our chicken enterprise. And because of that, um, we ha had no choice but to scale down our turkey enterprise because our, our turkey enterprise has always been highly seasonal on the farm. Uh, we've raised uh, two groups of turkeys, one in the summer and then one for um, fresh birds for Thanksgiving. And we had no problem running them through the processing plant because we had 20 full-time employees that process chickens. And, you know, if you process chickens, you can easily process turkey. And we could fit any amount in on virtually any week. Once you get rid of those 20 um, chicken processing employees, you know, we got some really good employees in the plant, but they've got, you know, year round uh, pork processing work to do. So it, it becomes kind of difficult to um, stuff in a um, highly seasonal um, poultry. And, and we're, we're still trying to figure that out because uh, I think we still have as many opportunities to sell as many turkeys as we used to, but I'm, I'm not sure that the labor situation is going to allow that um, anytime soon. So really just, was it availability or, or cost of labor or both um, re really drove your chicken decision? Um, it's, it's both, but it was uh, just as much availability as it was cost. I mean, granted, uh, we had a hard time competing in the wholesale chicken business. So cost was for sure a factor. Uh, but, you know, Monday morning when you got three or 4,000 uh, chickens, um, setting out there in uh, crates ready to be harvested, um, which is the number that we, we normally always did them on Monday morning. And we'd be three to six people short. And me and my son and Antonio trying to fill in those extra positions. At some point, you know, the when I'm the person on the scalder and the plucker, and there's supposed to be two other people with me. And I got 4,000 chickens staring at me and I'm doing it by myself. And my son's in the same scenario and Antonio's in the same scenario. At some point you're like, man, uh, there's easier ways to kick yourself in the ass every day. <laughs> oh, easier ways to poke your eyes out. I got you. Yeah, yeah pretty <laughs> much. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually really like chickens and I actually really like um, processing chickens. Um, you know, uh, processing chickens is kind of like that, uh, 
what was it rubric or whatever the things that my uh, kids did when they were in sixth grade where you got to do this that does that thing and that thing you know um chicken processing uh chicken slaughter is so much more that than it is than pig slaughter is because uh those shackles go by a person and if there's not a chicken for that person to do their job you know you literally just added that shackle time to the end of the day so any one thing on the uh, chicken processing lines not working um you know you got 20 people that are standing around we're on pig slaughter you know we're doing that a lot more manual on a um, rail and if one piece isn't working the other guys just slide down and help finish cleaning up the pigs or they're doing something else our pig is uh um, slaughter is just so much more consistent if something breaks or if some or if a person doesn't show up where chickens is so much more of and and I you know I kind of really like that it's the how many plates can you spin at a time and keep them going and, it, and it's really really cool to see when it all clicks but you know it's when you got three to six people short it's kind of like you're starting to spin plates and you're that guy at the circus and all of the plates are starting to fall and there's not a dog hunting you can do about it sometimes, you know? So, <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. The, what do you, you ever foresee something changing, getting back into the pasture poultry business or um, you think that was a, a great thing to do in the past? Um, I, I can actually see in the future, if we figure the labor out, um, I don't think it'll be chickens or turkeys. I actually could see us uh, doing those kind of numbers of ducks and I could see them uh, fitting in with our um, solar sheep enterprise is providing the nutrients for the, um, for our grazing operation there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, that's a little more specialty and, and a little more yeah. restaurant driven for your, yeah. your wholesale buyer. Right. So. That's, right. Yeah. 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 yeah not, not quite as, not quite as competitive of a market as the chicken industry. And then um, uh, a little bit easier to actually differentiate the product. Um, you know, the, um, uh, I hate to say it, but in lots of ways, you know, when they give you that expression, tastes like chicken. I mean, we raised a really, really nice chicken, uh, but it's a lot harder to differentiate a chicken and the American consumer um, sees chicken as, expecting it to be the cheapest protein regardless i always told people um i think there's people that left their house saying man i want to go have one of gunthorpe's pork chops there's people left their house saying man i want to go have uh one of gunthorpe's duck breast you know there's lots of people leave to go to a nice restaurant to have a steak i don't think there's lots of people that ever get up and say man i want to go have a chicken breast tonight you know there's people that order that but i don't think that's what they leave their house for you know so it's, I mean, and if you look back, uh, Will Harris, he, he sends me a picture every once in a while of a menu from the early 1900s, I think it's like 1916 or something. Back then, uh, chicken was expen as expensive on the menu as a steak was. That's definitely not the case anywhere anymore. And I think when you're going to raise things on pasture, I think it's actually, especially since the whole um, labor um cost and availability shift and then the um, feed price shift I think it's actually just as expensive to um, raise a chicken as it is a um, grass-fed beef and the marketplace for sure won't pay that mm -hmm. that is true and yeah. uh, it's a uh, <clears throat> it's all a matter of perception isn't it right it is yeah <laughs> yep yeah the chicken industry's done uh 
one thing really, really good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a fan of the chicken industry, but uh, you know, they took that expression of chicken in every pot and they ran with it. It's what 90 some pounds for every man, woman, and child per year now. And it's supposed to be cheap and it's supposed to be plentiful and people are just supposed to be able to eat it all the time. But you know, it, in lots of ways, the typical um, Cornish cross, especially raised in a barn, you know, 36 to 39 days old, um, you know, I think there's, it's nothing more than a medium for a marinade in lots of ways. It's as bland as you can get. And, you know, short of raising uh, some different genetics, which we did some, uh, but, you know, that even drives your cost week, uh, worse. We did some Imperial Reds. And, you know, there there's some options for some chickens with more flavor. Uh, but the breast meat is, uh, you know, 25 to 40% less. And the birds take twice as long out in the field. And they process a little bit harder. Um, and they're, you know, so, um, but it's, I don't know. Uh, so I don't, I don't see us going back to chickens. I wish I could say that we would. And I, I mean, I, I think the guys doing the um, direct to consumer, I still think there's a lot of opportunities in pasture poultry. And I think it's a great um, model and a much larger percentage of the um, chicken in the U.S. should actually be out on grass, um, green grass, fresh air and some exercise. It's much better for the chicken and much better for the person that consumes it. Yeah, you know, when you see some of the pictures of chicken feet and they have the ammonia burn on them from being inside of the barns, uh, you know, compared to pasture, it's just it's just amazing the difference in the quality of life that the that the animal can have on pasture. And Oh yeah. Yeah, it, night and day difference. It blows blows my mind how how far we've we've in the name of efficiency how far we've gone. And uh yeah. And we don't even stop to recognize that. I don't believe. Um, no, you know, just, I, I, that's just the way it is. You know, we have to do it to, to keep costs down at, and, at what, at what expense. Right. Right. And I, I think it's got so bad that I think a large percentage of the um, people in rural America, even ones that grew up on farms uh, really don't have any clue the scale that um, industrial livestock and poultry production has got to. I don't think that they realize that, um, you know, there's 8.7 billion chickens raised a year and uh, it's only 20,000 uh, growers that raise them all. I don't think that they realize that, you know, what, uh, half of the dairy cows now are controlled by uh, 3% of the dairy farms. Um, you know, pigs are just as bad. I think it's what, uh, 30 hog farms in the country is more than two thirds of the hogs. Uh, average egg laying house is over a million hens now. And I, I think that that changed so fast. Um, and I, I, like I said, I don't even think the people in rural America that grew up on farms realize it's those kind of numbers now. It is amazing. So what's wrong with that? Is that good or is that bad? Um, you know, the um, no one, I think, can ever fault um, uh, commodity agriculture for as productive and as efficient it is, but it has an awful lot of hidden cost. And I think that uh, COVID um, showed us those, uh, you know, guys like me and, you know, lots of my friends have been talking about this forever, um, but no one really listened before COVID. And I think one of the um, biggest uh, um, flaws in the system is resiliency. When their system is clicking, uh, like I said, no one can fault it for its productivity and its efficiency. 
um, but it's not really resilient. And I think the biggest um, fault of it is uh, that from a national security, from a food security standpoint, I think that uh, we'd be we'd have been a lot better off to have not blown up the independent traditional family farm model. You know, and then beyond that, it's got a lot more issues. You know, I think the um, I would tell people jokingly, but it's actually really not funny. The um, two biggest exports off from farms over the years has been our um, kids and our topsoil. Um, we have a serious brain drain in rural America, and it's because there isn't really lots of opportunities um, or people don't see lots of opportunities. And I think that local food and sustainable agriculture has a really big um, opportunity in changing that. Um, and then, you know, there, there's just a lot of faults in the system. We send an awful lot of nutrients um, down the river. Um, you know, the Gulf is not even suitable for um, fishing in lots of areas. And it's because of the amount of fertilizer um, that it's not just used, but that it leaves um, farms. Uh, that's just a huge um, waste. And then, you know, you look at um, food insecurity issues. Some of the most productive areas of agriculture in the United States are also some of the most food insecure um, regions of our country. Um, poverty in rural America is atrocious. Um, the economic metrics of rural America look worse than the inner cities. So this whole idea of efficiency, it, it all really comes down to a system of haves and have nots. And, you know, I think that uh, I don't want to go preaching too much, but this ends up becoming a ethical issue. You know, it, it long term becomes an issue of uh, income uh, inequality and wealth inequality. And, you know, there, there's a handful of uh, farmers out here in rural America um, that have done quite well in this system. Uh, you know, uh, typically very large um, commodity operations. And there's an awful lot of rural America that's been left behind by this system. And, you know, that's the thing that I talk about uh, most. Um, you know, food that tastes better, yeah, that, that, that'd be great. And there's a small percentage of the population that really likes that. Um, you know, less uh, um, environmental problems, uh, stuff going down the river, um, less uh, um, antibiotic resistant bacteria. I mean, the um, emissions coming off from, you know, so that we can actually breathe the air because uh, EPA gives uh, farmers a huge amount of exemptions compared to industry and at some point, we probably have to realize that the level of agriculture nowadays is probably industry and it's not, you know, the exemptions gave because of family farms and I'm not advocating for more regulations. I'm actually probably, if I, you put me on the spectrum, I'm probably a libertarian on that regards and believe that the marketplace ought to fix this stuff, but the marketplace is probably kind of dysfunctional too. So, well, so I guess, I, you know what, the marketplace can't fix itself if the marketplace doesn't know. And, and there's there's two things. There's the information is hidden from the consumer, but then the consumer, honestly, is still apathetic in, in making that decision, right? So when it comes down to it, you know, if you knew the true externalized costs of, of the food that you're eating, but it was still cheaper, consumer is still going to choose cheaper. You know what I mean? There's there's that, there oh, is yeah. that disconnect to it, right? Right. And, you know, and there's, there's a huge amount of, uh, externalized cost and, you know, uh, 
part of that efficiency and productivity that we can't take away from agriculture is part of that is uh, that they've been really, really good at shifting those risks uh, from themselves to not just consumers, but also to the um, farmers uh, that um, produce for them, you know, and they've done that and we, we've lost our share of the um, retail dollar. Um, and, you know, most commodity farmers uh, on the livestock and poultry side don't even own the animals on their farm anymore, you know, so I mean, uh, and they say that for uh, risk shifting, but, you know, we've seen at the beginning of COVID, uh, those contracts necessarily aren't any good when the um, packer won't honor them. You know, so, I mean, did they really shift risk? All they did was shift all the reward to the packer and they're still taking the risk of having a live animal that they can't do anything with. So, I mean, the system is, yeah. So I guess this, the system does have its uh, problems. Uh, and I think that uh, long-term, we'd all be better off if a much larger portion of the system uh, went in a different direction. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things I like that you said there early on is people um, you, and you corrected yourself. You said, Oh, people don't have the opportunities. And then you said, no, 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 people don't see the opportunities. And I, I think that's a real key is that you see where those opportunities are at, Greg. And, and how do you encourage other people to see opportunities in what they're doing um, that they may not see today. What what are some things that you think have been good for you that always are, are allowing you to ask those questions or to see things differently? Oh man, that that's a that's a great um, great question. That's probably something we could talk for a couple hours on. But um, you know, the um, uh, good friend of mine, um, Steve Bonney, ran a um, nonprofit group called Sustainable Earth. And I would say that um, he probably helped me as much as anything uh, in that um, seeing that, um, you know, we're not just producing uh, commodities, um, we're actually producing products that turn into food. And there's 300 and some million people in the United States, and they eat an awful lot of food. Um, and uh, uh, there, there are so, so many opportunities uh, to produce things on farms and to connect with those um, consumers. And I think that um, I actually think it's becoming more trendy now. Um, but, you know, it's uh, I, I think one of the biggest obstacles uh, to it is uh, I think it's still uh, difficult to step out of that um, you know, we're just going to raise crops or we're just going to raise animals because I think rural communities are actually quite rough on uh, farmers that do step out of that um, uh, paradigm. I think it's getting a little better, but they are they're kind of uh, rough on that. You know, the um, I would say that um, uh, and maybe it's changed a little bit now, but at first, you know, was labeled the um, granola crunching hippie farmer that wasn't smart enough to put up barns for his hogs, you know, and guys that direct market now, they're, you know, the commodity guys look at them like, oh, why would they do that? But, you know, it's um, that I think there's a um, large amount of uh, loyalty um, in connecting to the um, end consumer. And there's a huge, huge opportunity and capturing a larger portion of that uh, retail dollar. 
And it, I think that uh, um, as the younger generation, uh, you know, I think the land grant university, uh, I went to Purdue and my oldest daughter went to Purdue, both in the ag econ department. I think uh, Dr. Hurt down there says it takes 1500 acres um, per family member now uh, to have a full-time job on the farm, you know, and we have uh, what close to 20 employees on 275 acres and uh, my wife and I, plus my son, you know, fully um, employed on the farm. So I think we kind of break the rules, but, and I, I think there's lots of opportunities for people to come back to the farm, whether that's, um, you know, something in the organic industry or whether that's something in the grass fed um, uh, beef or um, sheep industry, or whether that's pastured pigs or pastured poultry. Um, you know, there are just so many ways to step out of that um, commodity paradigm and, you know, capture a premium uh, for something that, you know, probably takes a little bit either more um, labor or more management or a little bit of both. Um, but, you know, the, those were the things that farmers that kept them on the land rather than getting out the checkbook and writing things for that your money goes off the farm immediately. Yeah, but, uh, you know, um, you don't get to go to Florida in the winter and you don't, uh, you know, deer, deer and company doesn't get to have the $2 billion profit quarters, you know, if you, if you do right. things, but no, that's pretty amazing. Uh, tw 20 people on 275 acres. You definitely, um, you really screwed up the, the data points there, Greg. I, uh, you're yeah. an outlier. So they'll just kick that out of the data set. I don't count. Right. Yeah. Uh, so what do you see um, some ways that uh, technology coming into, you know, uh, farmers that want to go direct to consumer, that makes it easier than ever before today to start doing it compared to when you started in, you know, 94, 98. Um, and what are some things you see in the future that's going to make it even easier for a farmer that would want to diversify, uh, have a more regenerative approach by integrating livestock onto their land and uh, have a more diversified income approach? Uh, just as you look across things, why, why do you think it's a, uh, I contend it's easier than ever before today, and it'll be even easier in the future. You can you can tell me if you think I'm wrong there, but uh, what are some things you see coming together to make it any farmer able to to do this if they really wanted to? Are you talking just the um, uh, marketing end, or are you talking the I'm whole talking spectrum? What, whether you are growing, uh, you want to grow diversified crops to market crops for produce or or specialty grains, mm -hmm. or whether you're integrating livestock, pastured production those kind of things, uh, any way that farmer can connect direct to consumer. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to answer that in uh, what might be an odd way, but I'm going to come the whole way from uh, okay. production, processing, and I'm going to talk about the marketing. And uh, on the production side, um, I would say that um, if my grandpa was still alive today, he'd be extremely proud of what we're doing, uh, but he would also um, just shake his head on how easy we have it um, to raise pigs outside um, compared to what he had it when uh, he was uh, my age or my, um, especially compared to when he was my son's age. Um, you know, and the, those are the things like, uh, we have energy free waters with uh, buried plastic line now that, um, uh, you know, compared to my grandpa that uh, used to have to fill the um, 80 gallon waters and, and guess pretty close to the amount that the um, sows or pigs were gonna drink in 24 hours so that that little 
Um, it, we call them smudge pots, that little kerosene heater underneath the thing uh, would keep the trough from uh, being completely froze by the next day. Um, you know, we have uh, large squares and big round bales of uh, straw to um, bed huts. And we have hydraulic trailers to move pigs around and can back in under huts and just take huts um, around where they had to, you know, every single bit of the straw was done with uh, small squares. Um, you know, and the um, huts were on wooden skids that uh, you just um, closed your eyes and crossed your fingers every time you hooked on to them, hoping that the runners didn't pull out of the things when you hooked on to them. Where now we back the hydraulic trailer under the thing, pick them up. Uh, you know, we've got um, uh, 30, 40 jewel fence chargers with uh, temporary electric fence uh, that we can put animals exactly where we want them. And with a uh, pretty good peace of mind, uh, know that that's where they're going to be when we come back, where, you know, it took woven wire fence before and uh, you really couldn't put animals into different locations and you couldn't uh, strip graze and you couldn't uh, rotationally graze and you couldn't hog down corn and all that as easily and as efficiently as you can do um, now. So there's a bunch of stuff on you know, uh, mechanical front wheel assist tractors that, uh, you know, side by sides and four wheelers to get around. Um, uh, you know, the I can take my uh, phone out of my pocket right now uh, and on field margin app, I can tell you where every group of our animals are right now and where they were. And, you know, um, all of our records are on the um, phone. So, I mean, we there's a um, you know, people tend to say that us regenerative pasture farmers are anti-technology, and I'd say we're actually um, pro-appropriate technology, you know, and in the um, processing plant is uh, kind of the same way. We have a little bit of um, uh, current technology in the um, processing plant, uh, but just like the farm, uh, lots of our stuff in the processing plant, we tend to stay one or two generations behind the um, industry. Uh, just because uh, we're not big fans of buying things that rust, rot, and depreciate. So um, if we can buy a used uh, large piece of equipment in the processing plant, uh, it's just way, way more efficient for us than what we were doing before by hand. And, you know, it's not a $100,000 piece of ma machinery. For example, our um, skinner for our pigs that takes the um, rind off from it. Uh, we bought that used for uh, $4,000. It was a 1972 uh, morel. It worked completely fine for us. Nowadays, the um, industry that's done on a conveyor, uh, the bellies are just dropped on a machine and the, um, they come out the other side with the skin off. Lots of the plants, the, um, the barrel portion of the pig, the skin comes off. So, you know, older technology still works for us. Um, on the marketing side, the ability to connect with consumers nowadays uh, without even having to leave the farm is so much more tremendous nowadays than it was even when we started, you know, I mean, you alluded to it earlier, uh, you know, there, there wasn't even the internet really. I mean, there was, I mean, I guess there was, uh, it was on a few email listservs, if you remember those back in the day, uh, but there wasn't like the internet that we have now, you know, and there wasn't web pages and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to connect with um, consumers. It's a lot easier to communicate with consumers. It's a lot easier to um, uh, access to um, platforms that you can sell your products on. Um, 
it's just even a lot easier to get access to um, resources and information, you know, on the um, production, the processing and the marketing side. Uh, when we first started, there was not um, things like the Niche Meat Processing Assistance Network, which is part of Oregon State's extension. Uh, you know, if you had questions on processing, you had to go research it somewhere and there wasn't even the internet to look it up on, you know, and nowadays uh, there's uh, technical resources available for that at the um, touch of your finger on the computer. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's changed immensely. So yeah, in, in some ways it's uh, uh, more difficult. I'd probably argue that in some ways, but uh, in lots of ways, uh, it's just so much uh easier and more accessible to do. Yeah. Great points. You know, I, I was just thinking back what you're saying on the production side. Yeah. There is a lot of things we, when we had hogs out on pasture, we didn't have polywire, you know, right. some people may had a, a, a high in, or what was a low, in, whichever the older version of a shocker with a, with a, you know, single wire uh, with some metal posts with insulators in the ground that just never did work that well. But uh yeah, I mean, it's come a long way there to being able to pasture uh, pork out in there, out on the field. Well, um, yeah, my dad still, my dad still doesn't believe uh, this whole idea that you can just run high tensile wire out there and that you don't have to take all of the weeds off because he remembers the days of the, remember those, the weed zappers that they were straight 110 and it just like made that large chopping noise and actually just cut the power and first weed on the thing and the fence was dead these low impedance chargers nowadays man i don't think you can put enough weeds that i'd want to grab a hold of the fence still <laughs> that is sure well um we got a few minutes left here anything that uh, we should have visited about today greg that i didn't bring up in our time together um not a lot um i think the um uh one thing and I, i'm on a um processor to processor um, peer group. And I think the one thing that um, uh, lots of us in the direct marketing space um, uh, forget, um, and I've, I've been as guilty of it as anyone, I think that we have to remember that um, ultimately our business comes down to uh, that we have to solve a problem for our consumer rather than finding a consumer that solves the problem for us. You know, in uh, our business, um, clearly went to direct marketing because, uh, you know, we were commodity producers and the commodity market no longer worked. Um, but I can't look for a consumer that wants to keep me in a, um, you know, basically in the commodity market doing something different than commodity producers. I have to find a consumer and we have to produce a product um, that actually fits their needs. And I think when you do that, it's, it's a, it's semantics in a way, but it's definitely not semantics and it makes the business function a lot better. Well, it's a mindset really. And that's right. what allows you to preserve the value that you're creating instead yep. of creating a, a commodity that makes it as cheap as possible. You're yep. trying to preserve the value of what you're creating and, and get it to the right person in the way they want it. And then, and then one other, one other thing, and my son would be upset if I didn't mention this, cause I have to mention this everywhere and I get my phone out at events and stuff. Um, uh, I, I always challenge everybody, um, and same thing for us. Our, our address is uh, 435 North, 850 East. We're just south of Mongo. I always challenge everybody that anyone you talk to, any farm you see, uh, whatever, um, 
pull them up on uh, Google Earth or pull them up on the satellite version of maps. Um, I think that that has as much value as um, certifications. I don't think that we need a lot of um, education to consumers. Uh, they pull up an operation like ours. Um, you can tell from the satellite whether we're doing what we say we're doing. And you can tell from satellites on some of those others when you're in the store, um, uh, when you're back home. Pull them up. See what they look like from space. And I challenge everybody, see what see what our place looks like from space. Ours is actually pretty cool. It sticks out like sore thumb in the community um, from uh, satellites. <laughs> Well, that is neat. And I, I've also enjoyed doing that too. You can see people who've been long-term um, no-till cover crop practitioners compared to people who've been full-till, you know, with nothing. You can you can see the difference in the darkness of the soil from the satellites. And yeah, you oh, can yeah. see the difference in how you're raising the animals. So Kim's writing down right now. She's going to put a link in there. So everybody's going to be zooming in on your farm. So Okay, yeah, I'll wave at them. <laughs> you see a bunch of satellites over top of your farm every day now. Yeah, yeah, just... Tell them keep the balloons home. <laughs> uh, shoot. Uh, anyway, no, I, uh, Greg, I really admire what you've done. And, um, you know, just you're a pioneer in doing what you've done. And a neat part of you, you provide a, a model that others can follow. Oftentimes, a friend of mine says the second mouse gets the cheese. So you have you have survived the first mouse traps, and and have been successful and continue to do great things. And it's uh, it's neat to see what you're doing to meet customers' needs, and and provide uh, amazing opportunities for your community. So, uh, just just congratulations on on all that you've done there and and the impact that you've made. We and oh, thank you're an example to follow. Thank you. So uh, invites always open. If you find yourself over in the Quad City direction, um, uh, you're welcome to stop by and, and say hi. I find myself in Indiana. I might, now that I got your address that you just gave away, I might, oh, the, might just drop um, in someday. <laughs> yeah, please please do. If you ever go um, east on the Indiana Toll Road, um, jump off at South Bend onto US 20. It won't take you any longer to get back to when you're in Ohio on the toll road and you'll literally go through the center of the farm and please do stop. Perfect. Perfect. Looking forward to it. Well, Hey everyone, Greg and I were talking after the recording and, and he reminded me, we forgot to talk about sheep and the solar project and what you got going on there. Uh, tell us a little bit about your sheep enterprise, your lamb enterprise and, and what you have going there and your grazing in the solar panels. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we got a, um, couple flocks of uh, hair use, some uh, Katahdin Dorpers. Uh, a couple years ago, we got our first ones. And I think we really lucked out because our first ones had uh, zero um, hoof problems and zero um, parasite problems. And uh, um, we really enjoy the things actually, but um, uh, you know, they're uh, grass fed, um, uh, seasonal uh, pasture lambing operation. Um, and uh, we have close to 600 ewes on the farm now. Uh, they actually, the numbers of sheep can grow quite fast when, uh, you know, you can end up growing the flock by about 50% each year. Uh, but the coolest opportunity that we have with the sheep now is that um, I've been watching, I got a couple of uh, friends, the Hendricks family down in Missouri and uh, um, Will Harris and the White Oaks group down in uh, Southwest Georgia have been uh um, getting paid um, to control vegetation on solar farms. And uh, it, it somewhat kind of reminds me of our starting into the direct marketing because I've made an awful lot of um, cold calls 
And I think that we've actually made a um, connection now. Uh, it sure looks like that um, uh, starting next spring, uh, we'll have our sheep will no longer spend the grazing season here. Um, they're going to be on about 800 acres of uh, British Petroleum uh, light sources, uh, one of their solar farms uh, west of here. Uh, and they're going to be um, keeping the grass down uh, to a level that the um, panels won't be shaded. And it's a win-win situation because it's, uh, um, you know, and I think uh, from a business standpoint, win-win situations are the things that uh, work best for sure. And, uh, you know, sheep actually can control vegetation on solar farms and the farmer can get paid. And that can be a lower cost for the um, solar farms than them hiring uh, mowing crews. And, you know, as the whole uh, labor challenge become availability and cost goes higher, uh, you can imagine it's only going to get more expensive for them to um, mow and control the grass and weeds under these solar panels. Um, and sheep uh, love to do it. And, you know, so um, the sheep market and the goat market, uh, which we don't have goats, but sheep and goat market is one of the few um, commodity livestock markets that um, is still strong. Uh, you know, we we have these, uh, you know, 50, 60 pound um, uh, fat lambs. Uh, they've never seen any grain. Uh, they're finished in the same season that they're lambed in. So the only thing in the winter that we have is um, dry ewes uh, that can take really low quality hay. Um, and these uh, fat finished lambs go to the auction and 30 to 50 percent of the um, lambs in the United States, depending on the week are these whole lambs going into the ethnic market. And those aren't really influenced yet. And I say yet because, you know, I've, I have a long history of watching uh, commodity markets tank, you know, but um, so far um, these small 40 to 60 pound uh, finished lambs, you know, the last 10 years have been selling for 250 to $4 a pound at the auction. And so we've been getting good price selling them live um, and, not having to process them. And obviously we process a few at the farm, uh, but our goal really is to have a diversified um, income stream and a diversified product uh, that we don't have to rely on having to um, staff our plant and having to figure out how to sell all of the pieces off from a um, different product. So we're, we're really, really excited about um, the um, solar grazing opportunity. Yeah, plus it integrates well with what you're doing on the pork and your winter for cleanup, if you will, uh, where, you know, paddocks that maybe are regenerating from where the hogs have been. So it, it's a good, good uh, mix there. And um, yeah, you're solving a problem. You don't have, they don't have to pay somebody to mow it or to employ it. And you're getting essentially free feed, if you will. Right. So, uh, yeah. Win-win for everybody. No. Yeah. We should have had, the, we should have had uh, sheep on the farm for the last um, 20 years. What they do for the um, pastures, is just amazing. We, we've spent a boatload of money over the last 20 years um, in uh, labor, fuel, and um, tractors in mowing pastures to keep them in uh, condition to run pork and poultry across them. And we should have been doing sheep. I mean, not that we needed another plate to spin, but if I had it to do over again, that's probably my biggest mistake. So we should have bought a flock of sheep 20 some years ago. Now, the key word there is, though, Greg, keeping them on the farm. You know, once it's one thing, bringing them to the farm, keeping them on the farm is the other thing. Them suckers oh. like to get away, don't they? <laughs> oh, you know, the um, and I think wool sheep would be worse um, 
but yeah, hair sheep. And uh, we found out this year, um, you know, we, we had a really dry fall. Um, and as the ground gets drier, um, their hair gets longer, um, the pasture gets shorter. Um, they can see the grass on the other side. They, they get a lot more stubborn. They get a lot more difficult to keep in. We didn't have quite that problem last year, but we had a lot more um, rain and the grass was a lot nicer. So the ground was better conductive too. And they, they weren't as hungry, you know? So yeah, it's, um, they're, they're, they're definitely have their challenges. You know, there's a reason that uh, most of the cattle guys won't have a sheep on the farm, so, but we like them. So. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing that, Greg. And that's another way to think about how to, to create more revenue or maybe if you had a farm ground that was taken away, that was part of a solar project. Doesn't mean that uh, just because you can't grow corn and soybeans on it now that you can't create revenue by grazing underneath those panels. So I think agrovoltaics is an ish, is a topic that uh, we need to take a look at in the future because uh, as we pursue other energy sources that include solar, uh, that's going to be uh, something that's definitely needed. So, well, Greg, thanks for your time today. And uh, thank you for all that you do to provide great food that people can trust and uh, and for the your leadership that you're providing for other farmers to to follow and do what you're doing. Uh, thank you. What a great conversation. We should probably give college credit for this crash course in ag production. Hearing Greg and Monty discuss all these twists and turns has hopefully got your wheels turning. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what's possible for your own farming and ranching system, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.